Hello, and thank you for joining me on the very first episode of Unlearn Now Learn, the survivor-led podcast that discusses all things domestic violence. My name is Abby, and I'm so excited to be starting this conversation today. I have a lot of really good info to share with you, and today we're going to start to talk about what domestic violence really is and sort of laying down a foundation for future conversations to happen. You can almost think of it as like a domestic violence 101 intro course. So, you know, I think domestic violence is something that really does affect everyone, even if you don't realize that maybe there's a connection to you or that it's even around you. And at the same time, I think that many people have a certain image or idea in their mind when they think about what domestic violence is. But often we're just making judgments and assumptions that aren't really accurate and they also leave out a lot of really important information. So today I hope to break that down a little bit and offer some insight. But before I get into that, I want to just take a little while to introduce myself and share why I wanted to start this conversation. And also, why should you listen to me talk about this of all the people who are talking about domestic violence? What's unique about my perspective? So I've spent the last six years or so in different capacities working with both perpetrators of violence and those who've experienced violence. I do have a diploma in community justice, and I'm on the tail end right now of completing a degree in criminology, but I'm really not an expert in anything other than my own experience. I am a repeat survivor of violence, and I will be sharing my story on another episode. But a lot of my perspectives come from what I experienced and what I went through. I also think it's important to share that You know, just because I have had my own experiences of violence doesn't mean that I uh, have the same perspective as someone else who's a survivor. Even if someone has survived something similar, it doesn't mean that you're an expert in their life now too. You know, there are some patterns and universal elements of domestic violence for sure, but everyone's story is so unique and personal that I think it's important to keep perspective of that and you know I do try to maintain an intersectional lens because I am a white straight female and you know that doesn't mean that my experiences have been less significant but what it does mean is that there are elements of my experience that I am protected from and my access to resources and support outside of that that uh, violent experience has been privileged. So I am going to be bringing some really amazing people to join me on other episodes and share their perspectives and their knowledge um, as survivors, educators, and allies. So stay tuned for that. And really, anyone who's been involved or worked in domestic violence knows that the most effective interventions are not happening in silos. It's critical to be collaborative and bring other people with other levels of expertise 
and firsthand experience in to be able to really support someone. You know, there's no one-stop shop. You can't be everything for everyone. So I want to be able to amplify the voices of other survivors and experts and bring their perspectives into the conversation. Now, because real stories are being shared and I'm going to be speaking at times from my own experience, names and details around those stories will be changed in order to protect the confidentiality and the safety of anyone who might have been involved. I also want to mention that I won't be providing a regular trigger or care warning throughout these episodes and I'm going to take a cue from a post that was done by um, another Instagrammer called the Indigenous Anarchist and they had written a post about why they don't use trigger warnings on all of their posts. So for me, when we're talking about violence, I mean, it's going to get raw and it's going to get real. And quite honestly, this entire podcast series can be one big trigger in itself. In my experience, it's pretty rare to come out of a violent situation and be right ready to face it head on or like work around it right away. So I think it's really important to tread carefully and put yourself and put your wellness first you know, rather than pressuring yourself to be exposed to too much too soon. So if you're a survivor and you're listening to this, I'm encouraging you to reflect on where you're at in your healing and consider what resources and supports you have access to right now. I will also say that um, I can be quite sarcastic and other survivors will understand this, but there's sort of a collective survivor sense of humor that can be pretty dark and pretty pessimistic. But um, ultimately, you know, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't have a sense of hope. And even if just one person is listening to this and um, is able to feel more informed you know hopefully it is going to make a difference in feeling more prepared to respond to someone or support someone who has been affected by violence because when you really start to think about it it's very very sobering to realize that someone is being hurt right now someone is currently walking on eggshells to try and stay safe or keep a child safe. Right now, someone is hiding marks or bruises under their clothes or keeping up a lie to cover for their abuser. Someone is sitting in their car with 911 typed out trying to decide if what they saw was serious enough to call. It's pretty hard to think that all of these things are happening all of the time. And quite frankly, I'm pretty pissed off about it. I think we're having more open conversations these days, but I still hear a lot of myths and ignorance about violence. You know, people still want to stay out of it, make it someone else's problem, 
or just make judgments, you know, even along the lines of, well, clearly they deserve it. They're choosing to stay. I don't know about anyone else, but I can't ignore it. And I'm here to be in your face about it because we've got a lot of work to do. So behavior comes from beliefs. And in order to change our beliefs, we have to do a lot of unlearning. Unlearning of, you know, messages and things that were taught to us sometimes all of our life. We have to be able to let them go and make space in order to learn new ways and new beliefs that are healthier and less harmful. So what is it exactly that we have to unlearn? Well, I know for myself, growing up, I definitely remember seeing a lot about domestic violence, you know, in movies and television, um, music videos, uh, or you'd go to a doctor's office and you'd see signs of a woman's face, usually a white woman with a black eye, and then a man's fist somewhere in the background. You know, if you do a quick Google search right now of domestic violence, I'm sure you'll see an image similar to that. Even leading up to my own experiences of violence, I still didn't really know what it was. And I think that's why this conversation is so important. So people can know the signs because rarely does it actually just look like a scared woman with a black eye. It wasn't really until I started to heal from my own experiences that I learned what domestic violence is. And the more I learned, the more I saw a disconnect with the way that people talked about it and the way that it was shown, you know, on TV and in social media and things like that. But the truth is that it really can look like many things and it can be very gray not this black and white idea that we have in our heads. So that makes it so much harder to give a universal definition to and try to really pinpoint what those warning signs are. So when we're thinking universal, most definitions include a pattern of abusive tactics, which can be physical, sexual, emotional, or financial, and These are tactics that go through cycles in the relationship. Abuse is a pattern. It happens repeatedly over and over a certain amount of time. And generally when there's been physical abuse, the emotional abuse has been happening for quite a while. Depending on how severe the physical violence is, it can actually tell you a lot about how long they might have been in that relationship. The term domestic violence is kind of an umbrella term that covers any type of violence happening within a home or family setting. So if intimate partner violence is happening in a home with children, then there would be overlap with child abuse. So it's all different types of abuse, but in a domestic setting. And this truly can happen to anyone from any background but there are some groups that are affected disproportionately. So I'm going to go ahead and share some numbers with you. And these are Canadian-based statistics, but they're comparable across the board. So 
about 30% of all police reported crime is of a domestic nature. Female victims are four times more likely than men to experience severe forms of violence or to be killed. And so even in Ontario, 79% of victims of intimate partner homicide are female. This is really very disturbing because when we look at um, murder victims by gender globally, 80% of victims are male. But when we look at victims who have been murdered by an ex-partner, the opposite is true, that 80% are female. And female victims experience sexual assault 30 times more than men do. Women with disabilities are 40 times more likely to be victims of violence by an intimate partner and also experience more severe forms of violence. Across the board, anyone who identifies as part of the LGBTQ community experiences higher rates of physical and sexual violence. Lesbian and bisexual women experience higher rates of physical and sexual violence far more than heterosexual women. Black women are victimized at a rate of 35% more than women who are not identifying as black. And when there's overlap between women who are black and who identify with the LGBTQ community, we see even more severe forms at a higher rate that is disproportionate. And there are some pretty specific abuse tactics and barriers for those who are in the LGBTQ community and also for those who identify as either Black, Indigenous, or a person of color. Indigenous women are three times more likely to be victimized by an intimate partner. So we do know that men are also victims of abuse and um, they tend to experience more emotional controlling abuse, um, but they are less likely to report it. And there are also some male specific barriers to finding help. When we look at those who perpetrate violence, we see that the overwhelming majority are male, 88% actually. And the majority of this is going on behind closed doors in the privacy of people's homes where it's so much easier to hide and that much harder to pick out. When we try to trace the steps back to where the cycle begins, we can look at childhood and men who were exposed to violence as children are three to four times more likely to be perpetrators of violence as adults. And women who were exposed to violence as children are five times more likely to experience it again as adults. So, you know, we've got a real problem here and it is not an equal playing field. But when we start to look at the similarities between different abuse situations, there are some clear patterns. So there's something 
called The Cycle of Abuse, and this cycle has been put together over and over by several different people, but generally there's there's uh, the same foundation. So when you first begin a relationship, before it's abusive, you know, usually things start out in the honeymoon phase. So, you know, things are good. Things are interesting. We're curious. We're learning. And slowly over time, what will happen is there's little flags that kind of pop up. And in the beginning, we're much more likely to gloss over those flags, kind of look past them, maybe make some excuses for them because why? We want the relationship to work. We're excited about it. You know, it could be that they are coming to your door or texting you a lot and, you know, it could almost seem like they are, you know, wanting to spend time with you and it's really sweet and it's really cute and thoughtful and over time that can turn into more and more controlling behavior or maybe they make a little comment about you know not wanting you to go to that party something like that so it can start out pretty innocently um, and we wouldn't really think much of it but over time it is going to escalate abuse only ever escalates without intervention it's never going to just make itself better So in life, you know, we all have stresses, we all have things that happen. So maybe there's things on the outside that are happening in an abuser's world. They come home, they're stressed, and it starts to come out more explosive. This could be emotional, this could be verbal, it might not be physical yet. Sometimes it takes a year or two years to even get physical, but the explosions will increase and escalate over time. So this could happen just once in a blue moon, and again, we go back to justifying it, making excuses for it, and thinking, you know, that was a one-off, they were really stressed, and things were just going on for them. We, we help them make excuses because it feels better for us that way too. So at this point, we've maybe justified it in our mind and we can go back to that honeymoon phase. So things are good, things are back to quote-unquote normal or are normal and we move on. But then, it's not long before the cycle happens again. Maybe there's a threat made. Maybe things do get physical this time. And, you know, you get pushed or slapped in the face or something like that. So after a big explosion, we'll go back to walking on eggshells. You know, the situation is unpredictable. We know how they've treated us before, but we also know that they can be incredibly sweet and we have good moments as well. So the longer that this relationship goes on for, the more that that honeymoon phase will disappear and the positive things, the good things that we hold on to 
about our abuser to help us justify their behavior goes away. And now all of the tension and walking on eggshells, you know, waiting for the axe to drop, that starts to take over. So now we're just fluctuating between this tension stage and waiting for the explosion to happen, waiting for the next time to be hit, waiting for the next meltdown, the next outburst, the next threat. And if you have an abuser who's apologetic, who, you know, after the explosion wants to make things better, oh, I'm so sorry, I lost my temper, or I was drinking, it won't happen again, please, can I make it up to you? You know, that's a, that's a pretty quick way to end the violence. So why wouldn't you accept that from them? right? We want it to end. We want it to feel calm and feel better. So we're going to take that way out if they give it to us. If you've been abused for long enough, you may actually end up trying to almost set your abuser off to get the violence over with. Maybe you do say something that you know is going to push their buttons. Maybe you do cross that line. And in some ways, This could be having a little bit of fight in you, having a bit of resistance. And at the same time, you can predict their behavior by this point. So I know that if I say this or if I do this, we're just going to get it over with and then I can carry on. It's sad, but that is really the, the mentality when you are surviving that situation. And someone who's being abused, they know their abuser better than anybody else ever could. They know what they're capable of. This is sort of where the the breakdown in our self-worth starts to happen. We surrender to the abuse because often it's the safer thing to do. You know, when it's been very abusive, it's predictable. And when you're really in a violent situation, it can be sink or swim. And so having that predictability can help you to stay above the water. But you know what? You can only stay in that situation for so long. And the other thing is um, someone being abused is still there in that situation, right? They want things to work out. I think a lot of people really want to take sacrifices to make a relationship work. And we kind of glorify this in our society. We encourage people to, you know, put themselves last and put other people first. So that can be kind of a dangerous default to go to. So throughout this cycle, an abuser is using different tactics and different ways to try and control someone or feel powerful. And there's a good example of what these tactics are. It's called the Duluth model. And 
you can find it with a quick Google search. Essentially, this model was made in the 80s um, in Minnesota by a woman who started to interview women who had fled abusive relationships and were living in shelters. And they did hundreds of interviews over time and eventually realized that there really is a pattern and there are a lot of similarities in the tactics that an abuser was using, even if their stories and their circumstances were individual. So these tactics can be kind of grouped into different forms of abuse. So there's emotional, which is, you know, your name calling, put downs, um, trying to make someone afraid or make someone sort of doubt themselves and and question themselves, maybe put the the blame on themselves and feel guilty. Um, There's financial abuse. So, you know, that would be like sending someone to the grocery store for $150 worth of groceries, but only with a $100 bill. So you're not leaving them with any money um, or preventing them from getting work, discouraging them, you know, maybe telling them that well, who would hire you? And, you know, you're not going to be able to keep a job. I, I can't see you doing that. Just little shreds of doubt, planting those seeds of doubt. Uh, physical abuse is another big one and kind of the the main culprit that we think of when we think of abuse. So anything physical that causes pain, injury, fear, you know, pushing, grabbing, hitting, throwing things, damaging property, um, using weapons. So these are all things that keep someone afraid and prevent them from thinking about leaving. They keep you dependent on your abuser out of fear. Then there's sexual abuse. I know you could think that, well, why isn't sexual abuse considered physical abuse? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, Sexual abuse isn't always physical, so it can include any kind of abuse that targets your gender, identity, um, you know, it could be harassment, it could be even um, making a threat to out someone, or using the wrong pronouns on purpose as a way to make someone feel bad. Um, It can be physical as well. And sexual abuse needs its own special category because this is such a severe form of abuse. There's a, there's a man named uh, Peter Jaffe, Dr. Peter Jaffe, and he's an expert in domestic violence. And he's actually the founder of the Ontario Domestic Homicide Death Review. Um, and he explains that sexual abuse is the worst element for the majority of victims, most humiliating and um, it brings on a lot of shame that you carry, you know, maybe lifelong. You know, even in a healthy relationship, sex isn't always easy to talk about and, you know, it's something that is so personal, right? Imagine having to talk about your sexual experiences in front of a courtroom 
or police officers or your family members, trying to explain that to them. It's something that is deeply, deeply shameful and personal. And sexual coercion is a big example of this. And I think that a lot of it is this repetition, persistence, which can escalate, you know, a normal interaction to a more violent interaction. So sexual coercion is when, in so many words, you're backing your partner into a corner to make them feel like they're not able to say no, as if going through with it is their only option. It's basically forcing someone without necessarily using physical force. So something along the lines of, well, if you do this, then you can go to bed after. It'll be quick and over and done with. Um, Or if you don't do this, then I'll find someone else who will. Or, well, you know, so-and-so wants to sleep with me and, you know, I can go get it from them if you won't give it to me. So, of course, it puts all of the blame on the person who's being abused. And it's all their responsibility to make sure that the abuser is satisfied and gets their needs met. But this doesn't take into account the psychological impact that it has on a partner over time. Sexual abuse is used as a weapon and it's another threat of violence. You know, people still talk about this and still victim blame and say, well, why would you let someone do this to you? Why would you let someone get away with that? If you had a gun pointed at your head, would you fight them? If you saw no way out, No, you wouldn't move because they've got the gun and you know that there's a real threat of violence. If someone is threatening you with sexual violence, it is a weapon and you are unlikely to fight back in that scenario because you're already in a dangerous situation. The threat is real and you know that it's real. Other forms of abuse that there might be in this cycle of abuse It's called invasive abuse. So, you know, this can happen in the relationship where your partner doesn't allow you to have any privacy. Maybe they keep your phone or your laptop. They have pressured you or coerced you into giving them all your passwords. Maybe it includes stalking. So they show up at your work. They show up at your house if you're not living together. Um... It's like a cloud over you. So how can you try and ask for help? How can you start a meaningful conversation with someone about leaving or about having a safety plan when you don't even have any time alone? This is one of the real challenges for people who are abused is you don't have time. You don't have privacy. It's not safe. If you think that texting your friend or your sibling to say, hey, I know that you're being abused. I'm here for you. If you think that that's a good idea, be very, very careful because if they're really being abused, 
it's highly unlikely that they have their own phone or that they're the only person who's reading that message. If there are children in the home, then child abuse would be another form that's going on. Um, if you know the children are involved, if there's um, arguing, if there's custody issues, you know, saying things about each other, um, turning them against each other, things like that. And if there's a religion or a cultural element, that could be used against them by saying, well, you know, you are misbehaving and, you know, God won't love you or getting the church involved. So there's really, it's really endless, the tactics and how far it will really go. So the Duluth model, another name for it is the power and control wheel. And the reason for this is if you're looking at the model, you'll see in the middle is power and control. So all of these tactics that are abusive are there in an attempt to gain control over a partner. You'll notice that this really is a wheel. So there's all these different pegs kind of creating the wheel in a circle. And each of these pegs are different abuse tactics that keep the wheel moving and keep the abuser feeling in control. And so if they're not getting the results from their partner that they're looking for, maybe they're feeling like they're losing some power even in their world outside of the relationship, they're going to have to kind of turn the notch up a little bit to feel that control back. And so the more desperate they are, the more violent they are. And this is where you'll see on the outside of the wheel, now we've come into physical abuse, sexual abuse, more extreme violence. And in a relationship, you would not have such extreme violence happening before the tactics on the inside of the wheel have been happening first. You would have emotional abuse, you would have control, you would have threats and intimidation, all as these warning signs leading up to more severe violence. We can see just how complicated this really is. So we know that not all domestic violence is the same and context is very important to understand the danger that someone could be in and what kind of intervention is going to be the most effective. And just to summarize, you know, we know that um, abuse can affect anyone and still there is a gendered element that we can't ignore so we want to be able to make sure that we're looking at all the factors and all the things that influence someone's unique situation someone is abusive when they act in ways without caring about the person that they're supposed to care about. And this includes different forms of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, financial, invasive, and so on. And this happens in a pattern that builds slowly over time. 
It involves intent and choice, and it has a real impact. Because this exists in a cycle, that means that the cycle can be broken. Being abused makes you feel powerless, but the truth is, nobody can ever fully close that door on you. It will always be there waiting for you to open it and take your power back when you're ready. So with that, I hope that you found today's episode helpful and informative, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to keep sharing information with you, so keep listening, and I'll see you for the next episode of Unlearn Now Learn.